What do you think about the increase in violence in most movies and TV? I think it's great, man. <laughs> you elaborate? Nah, it's just cool to watch, man. Ain't nothing but TV, dude. It's all fake anyway. TV has nothing to do with violence. No, I kind of like watching it, you know, but I got enough brains not to go out and do it. You see something like that and it seems to be the happening thing or something that makes kids want to do that. I like violence. It adds a lot of action, you know. It, makes, it keeps your attention on the TV. It's been said there's no more violent place on Earth than the Hollywood set. Not only has a death count become astronomical, but the victims often don't just die, they explode. Bodies contort in slow motion, blood flies, and the instrumentality of death is shown in excruciating detail. And if all that weren't disturbing enough, sexually oriented violence is increasingly being thrown into the mix. To better understand our love affair with violence, it's worth considering another culture whose power and wealth enable it to also pursue increasingly complex and grotesque forms of entertainment. Some 300 years before a Roman governor by the name of Pontius Pilate split history in half when he had a young rabbi from Nazareth crucified, the emerging Roman Empire inaugurated a new kind of entertainment. To commemorate a certain nobleman's death, six battle-hardened warriors were brought into a public arena. As the first pair began to fight, the crowd rose to its feet. This was no mock struggle, no theatrical event. As sword met flesh, real blood oozed from the wounds. By the day's end, the sights and sounds of pain and death had intoxicated the audience. The Empire's love affair with the gladiatorial games had begun. Over the next 600 years, oceans of blood were spilled as the games grew more plentiful, populated, and cruel. Weapons and the means of death became more diversified. To satisfy the growing lust for blood, condemned criminals were purchased by wealthy patrons and then publicly executed. And beginning with the Emperor Nero, a new group of people became unwilling players in these so-called games. Followers of the now resurrected Nazarene, these Christians, as they were called, died by the thousands rather than confess that Caesar was Lord. A noted historian describes the power these events held over the Roman citizenry. People liked it, and donors courted popularity through this potent psychological form. Violence made excellent viewing, and the crowds could be utterly callous. Well washed, well washed, called the crowd in Carthage when martyrs in their arena spattered themselves in blood. Today, a modern form of the gladiatorial games has hijacked the imagination of Western culture. Through the lens of a movie camera, violence once again makes, quote, excellent viewing. Today's audience, like those in the Roman Colosseum, is becoming increasingly calloused, shouting for more blood and higher death counts. Acclaimed director Martin Scorsese, himself a proud descendant of Roman culture, noted this startling parallel when he said, maybe we need the catharsis of bloodletting and decapitation like the ancient Romans needed it, as ritual but not real like the Roman circus. 
Scorsese got it half right. Our obsession with bloodletting reflects the same dullness of spirit that bound the fans of the Roman games. But to somehow excuse our modern bloodlust because it's aroused by cinematic fantasy rather than actual death is to ignore the spiritual dimension of our humanity. We are, as the scriptures clearly teach, profoundly affected by the things we allow into our hearts. To put it another way, sticks and stones can break our bones, but the words we hear and the images we see can hurt us in ways that are far more profound. And that's why the Bible cautions us. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the issues of life. For as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh or his sinful nature will from the flesh reap corruption. What happens when we stop watching over our hearts? When we sow, for example, seeds of gratuitous violence into the fertile soil of our fallen nature? Well, God's already told us. All hell breaks loose. In the last decade, violent crime has risen 40%. The rate climbs to 500% if we go back to 1960. The United States has become far and away the most violent of all the first world nations, with well over 10 times the international average of murders, assaults, and rapes. According to the U.S. Justice Department, Five of every six Americans will be victims of violent crime sometime during their lives. Everybody was running through the car saying, someone's got a gun, someone's got a gun. Perhaps most tragic of all, an average of 13 children are shot to death each day. Rodney Wakefield was killed last September with a sawed-off shotgun. While there are many factors that have contributed to this mayhem, over 3,000 studies now conclusively demonstrate that our steady diet of violent imagery in music, movies, and television play a major role. There can no longer be any doubt, writes one noted expert at the conclusion of an ambitious 22-year-long study, that heavy exposure to televised violence is one of the causes of aggressive behavior, crime, and violence in society. He goes on to estimate that 10% of all violent crime is directly attributable to related imagery in the popular arts. An estimate considered far too small by respected epidemiologist Dr. Brandon Centerwall. In the Journal of the American Medical Association, Dr. Centerwall suggests that if these types of images had never become pictorially and musically engraved on our national consciousness, violent crime would be cut in half. While there is no way to precisely compute the impact of this imagery on our culture, Few now deny the correlation between, for example, the epidemic of youth violence and the fact that by the time the average child is 16 years old, he will have seen over 200,000 acts of violence, including more than 33,000 murders. Michael Medved, co-host of Sneak Previews and author of the ground-shaking book Hollywood vs. America, points out that not everybody sees or perhaps wants to see this connection. You know what was amazing? In 1982, the Surgeon General of the United States released a report with five volumes of documentation proving, proving beyond any shadow of a scientific doubt that prolonged exposure to violent imagery on television encourages more hostile, violent, and aggressive attitudes and behaviors in real life. 
ABC TV responded officially to that report by saying, unfortunately, we have no conclusive scientific evidence that televised imagery impacts real-world behavior in any way, unquote. Now, if ABC TV believed that, then they better start refunding billions of dollars in advertising revenue. Because if televised imagery doesn't affect people's behavior, what are they doing selling ad time? You know, Medved makes an important point. What really is the difference between a 30-second beer commercial and, for example, a violent feature film? Well, about two hours. Are we really to believe that the only time film and television influence us is when some product is being advertised? Let's ask serial sex killer Ted Bundy. We're talking about an influence which, that is the influence of violent types of media and violent pornography, which had an, was an indispensable link in the chain of behavior, the chain of events that led to the behaviors, to the, to the assaults, to the murders, and what, and what have you. <laughs> and what scares and appalls me, Dr. Dobson, is when I see what's on cable TV, <laughs> some of the movies, I mean, some of the violence in the movies uh, that come into homes today with stuff that they, that they wouldn't show in X-rated adult theaters 30 years ago. And Bundy is far from being alone. Danny Rollins killed five Florida co-eds, mutilating them in ways that mirrored Exorcist III, a film he watched just before committing the crimes. Jeffrey Dahmer repeatedly viewed Hellraiser II to psych himself up before acting out his grisly fantasies. Two-year-old James Bolger was bludgeoned and mutilated in a murder so shocking that it made front-page news around the world. The murderers were two pre-adolescent boys with a fondness for the demonic knife-wielding doll from the movie Child's Play. These two British boys rented the horrific Child's Play 3 before mutilating and bludgeoning two-year-old Jamie Bolger to death. Child's Play indeed. From a killing spree spawned by an ABC movie, to a 52-year-old man who changed his name to Kruger in honor of the infamous Elm Street murderer before hacking a man to death, there are many, many examples of make-believe violence that have spilled over into real life. Again, we're not suggesting that violent movies, music, and television are responsible for all or even most of the violence in contemporary society. Studies do indicate, however, that they play a major role. Nor are we saying that a steady diet of violent imagery will turn the average person into a Danny Rollins. In the same way, however, not everyone who eats fatty foods dies of a heart attack. But a poor diet will affect you. Your stamina may decrease. Illnesses may become more common or last longer. Inevitably, somehow, some way, you will be affected. And if that's true for these finite bodies, how much more diligent should we be concerning our immortal souls? And it's here against the bulwark of this simple yet profound truth that hell has unleashed the full force of its fury. You know right from wrong. You just don't care. And that's the most natural thing in the world. When the classic film Cape Fear was first made in 1962, director J. Lee Thompson used subtlety and imagination to reveal the central character's evil nature. A rape scene, for example, was able to invoke the desired mood of suspense and horror without resorting to purposeful titillation. 
Contrast that with the same scene from the remake done by Martin Scorsese in 1991. Shadows and nuance give way to a virtual assault on the viewer's sensibilities, as even an element of cannibalism is thrown into the bloody mix. Acclaimed director Alan Pakula has noted the gradual desensitization that has taken place during the 30 years separating these two films. Movie violence, he said, is like eating salt. The more you eat, the more you need to eat to taste it at all. People become immune to effects. They've developed an insatiability for raw sensation. Evidence of this immunity and the moral callousness that comes with it is as close as the nearest television. The PG-rated Dick Tracy, a movie clearly aimed at children and young teens, featured 14 separate fatalities, many of which were shown in graphic detail. The Oscar-winning film The Silence of the Lambs not only graphically explored the mind and methodologies of two psychopathic killers, it managed to turn one of them into a hero of sorts and the surprise sex symbol of 1991. The cook, the thief, his wife, and her lover contain dozens of violent acts, including a man raping his wife in front of a child, torture, murder, and a graphic depiction of cannibalism. Michael Medved's book noted that popular critics Siskel and Ebert gave the movie two enthusiastic thumbs up, while Time magazine praised the film with such adjectives as exemplary, exciting, extraordinary, and splendid. Henry, Portrait of a Serial Killer, another critically acclaimed film, featured senseless acts of random violence rendered in excruciating detail. Even worse, the movie provided specific advice on how to pick out victims as well as avoid getting caught. If you shoot somebody in the head with a 45 every time you kill somebody, it becomes like your fingerprints, see? But if you strangle one and stab another, and when you cut up, when you don't, then police don't know what to do. They think you're four different people. This lesson on getting away with it is pounded home as the movie ends, with the central character disposing of his latest victim and then driving away undetected. Fade to black. And incredibly, fade up to a commercial for a Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer poster and T-shirt. Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer collector's merchandise. High-quality Henry T-shirts and original full-color Henry theatrical posters. Send a check or money order to Henry Merchandising, Post Office Box 151. You can dig one grain, or you can dig two. The 1993 film Romeo is Bleeding wowed both critics and audiences alike with an attractive female character who kills with sadistic glee. She's the cruelest, most awful female character I've ever seen. Actress Lena Olin described the moral framework she drew from in playing the role. 40s movies in Sweden, I got to see Humphrey Bogart, and I fell so much in love with him. I felt so much in love with the way he just did bad things, and it didn't have any guilt, and it didn't have any doubts, and he was just bad. And the movie's just, she just goes, and she's just terrible, and, and, and I love that. She's so bad, she's charming, you know what I mean? Today's entertainment industry seems to be awash in this type of amorality. Clive Barker, whose Hellraiser films were so inspirational to Jeffrey Dahmer, proudly admitted that the whole point of these movies was to break rules, to strike at taboos. All right, anyone left in there, come on out, grab an air. You know the drill. 
<laughs> Ethan Cohen co-wrote and produced Miller's Crossing, a film steeped in violent images. Among them is a man who's kept aloft by both the recoil of his tommy gun and the force of bullets tearing into his body from below. At one point in this macabre dance, he shoots off his toes, creating an entire scene that Cohen described as having something fun about it. And Sharon Stone, whose character in the 1992 blockbuster Basic Instinct dispatched her lovers while in the very act of having sex, told one interviewer, murder is a very sexual thing. Clearly, the church, in light of its responsibility to be salt and light in an otherwise dark and decaying world, needs to address our culture's love affair with death. And just as clearly, we must begin by examining ourselves. Have we been fraternizing with the enemy? Does Satan come to confront Christ's church wearing a confident smirk because he knows that hell's seed abides in us? To better understand this critical issue, we would do well to once again consider our forebears in ancient Rome. Less than 300 years after Christ's resurrection, a remarkable event took place. Convinced through a dream that Jesus had provided the victory that made him the ruler of the Western Empire, Constantine became not only emperor, but a professing Christian as well. Suddenly, the faith that had for so long been persecuted became the quasi-official religion of the Roman Empire. Churches were built with public funds, doctrinal councils were convened by imperial decree, and multitudes were baptized in order to be identified with the emperor's new religion. As an act of Christian charity, in 325 AD, Constantine officially banned the gladiatorial games. The national obsession with violence and death appeared to have been quelled. Within a short time, however, it became readily apparent that many people's hearts were not really into the moral discipline that goes with being a disciple of Christ. They were the ones of whom Jesus spoke in his parable of the sower and the seed, those upon whom the word of the gospel fall as seed on stony ground. And they, the plants of the Christian life, immediately sprang up because they had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. As many people's Christian commitment began to wither under the light and heat of God's holiness, hearts began to long for the old pagan practices. Once again, blood began to be spilled upon the sands of the gladiatorial arena. The irony of all this is staggering when you stop to think about it. In the very same places where believers were once martyred for their faith, professing Christians now lined the stands, cheering for the blood of some new unfortunate to be shed in the name of entertainment. In his classic book, The Confessions of St. Augustine, the great father of the church described the seductive power of the gladiatorial games in Christian Rome toward the latter end of the fourth century. He specifically details the fall of his close friend, Olypius. He, at his parents' request, had gone to Rome to study law. But while there, he was carried away by an incredible lust for the gladiatorial shows. In the beginning, he utterly detested such spectacles. But one day he ran into some friends and fellow students coming back from dinner. They rudely grabbed him and over his objections, insisted that he come with them to the amphitheater where these cruel and deadly shows were taking place. Olypius vowed to them, though you take my body into that place,
Can you force me to turn my mind or my eyes to those shows? I shall be absent even though present, and so shall overcome both you and them. Hearing this, they led him on, all the more eager to see if he could do as he said. When they came to the place and had taken their seats, the whole arena ignited with the savage pastime. Olypius, covering his eyes, refused to let his mind think about these evils. But finally, overcome by curiosity and thinking that he would look only so that he could more utterly despise the wicked spectacle, he opened his eyes and was stricken with a deeper wound to his soul than the dying man he now beheld had received in his body. For as soon as he saw that blood, he drank down the savageness, not turning away, but fixing his eyes, drinking in the frenzy unaware. Now he was not the man he was when he came but he had become one of the throng. Olypius's sin, like ours, runs much deeper than the mere thrill of danger and death. The greater tragedy is the way in which gratuitous violence strips away both the viewers and the victim's humanity. Both the image and the love of God is lost amid the blood and gore. The most sublime of stories, the passage of the human soul through life, is reduced to some cheap skit some selfish distraction. In place of love and the gospel of peace, we shod our feet with the jackboot of pride and apathy. This is not to say that all images of violence strip away the likeness of God and men. Quite the contrary. The many violent stories in the Bible bear ample testimony to the fact that suffering and pain are an inevitable part of man's journey through a fallen world. But the violence is never gratuitous. It invariably teaches a moral lesson and, more often than not, serves to accentuate, not deny, the personhood of the victim. One modern filmmaker who has attempted to be faithful to this principle is director Ron Maxwell. His movie Gettysburg recounts the true story of the bloodiest battle in America's most bloody war. The death of the body, the destruction of the body, is a horrific thing to see, and it, happened, it happens in war. Armistead, when he's dying, um, again, he's been shot. We, we, we show the wound. He actually got shot by wounds are meticulously recreated where, where they occurred according to the historical record. We feel the death of the, of the soulfulness of the person or of the person in his mortal coil, and that's what moves us. And the only way to get to that is to bring you in and to make you feel. And you can't feel when you're getting hit in the face with a flamethrower, a flamethrower of extreme violence and graphic violence you can't feel your sensibilities get shut down as a human being and you go into a response to shock it's the antithesis in my view of an artistic experience jesus himself addressed this dehumanizing potential during his famous sermon on the mount after urging his followers to be meek to be merciful and to serve as peacemakers at every opportunity he reminded them of the sixth commandment you shall not commit murder. Jesus then went on to deal with the internal attitudes that lead to this mortal sin. Do you hate your brother? Do you view him as being useless or a fool? In other words, and it's here that we need to pay particular attention, do you value others as image bearers of God, as people of inestimable worth? Or do you see them as expendable, as props in a play with you in the main role? 
Guess which attitude is invoked by our modern images of violence? How does God expect his people to deal with our national obsession with violence? How can we fulfill our responsibility to be salt and light in the midst of a dark and decaying culture? Perhaps no better example can be found than in the testimony of a man whose sacrifice brought an end to the gladiatorial games. Telemachus was a monk from the eastern portion of the Roman Empire, a man who chose to live a life dedicated to prayer and self-denial. In 404 AD, Telemachus made a pilgrimage to the west. Arriving for the first time in Rome, he heard the sounds of the gladiatorial games and went to investigate. The great Christian classic Fox's Book of Martyrs describes what happened next. A rudely clad, robed figure appeared for a moment among the audience, and then boldly leaped down into the arena. He was seen to be a man of rough but imposing presence, bareheaded and with sun-browned face. Without hesitating an instant, he advanced upon two gladiators engaged in a life-and-death struggle, and laying his hand upon each one of them, sternly reproved them for shedding innocent blood. Posterity records that Telemachus then turned to the vast audience, and with a strong voice resounding through the deep enclosure, pled with them in the name of Christ to repent of their wickedness. Angry cries and shouts erupted from the people. The gladiators whose very lives he had tried to save turned on him with their swords. Furious spectators threw stones or whatever missiles were handy at his bleeding form. And thus the brave monk perished in the midst of the arena. His death, however, was far from in vain. For as many of the people gazed upon the broken body of Telemachus, a spirit of conviction gripped their hearts. They suddenly understood that they had become as hideous as their entertainment. Rising to their feet, they left the games never to return. And as if to seal the sacrifice, the Emperor Honorius, when informed of the monk's death, numbered him in the army of the victorious martyrs and issued an imperial decree that put a final end to the impious spectacle of people watching death for sport. Today our culture, our Roman Empire, desperately needs some Telemachuses. It's literally dying for a church that is so filled with salt that even the gangrene signaled by a Jeffrey Dahmer, a Danny Rollins, or a basic instinct can be purged. It needs Christians who are so filled with light that even those in darkness can begin to see the real face of the shadowy stranger with whom they've been dancing away the night. That night, as the Apostle Paul said, is almost gone. The day is at hand. It's time for the church, perhaps it's time for you, to put away the deeds and the images of darkness and instead put on the armor of light. <laughs>